How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers. Because history matters. I have the honor today to be here with Bernard Schwartz, a distinguished business leader, philanthropist, public policy advocate at the New York Historical Society's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. We're going to have a conversation about his extraordinary life and about a book that he's written about that life, Just Say Yes. So let's go back to the beginnings, if we could. So you grew up in New York, is that right? You bet. And what did your father do? He made signs for industry. Okay. Um, he was a small businessman who sometimes did very well. Uh, when he did well, uh, we had a Nash, a big car. When he didn't do so well, we had a Plymouth. And when he did well, we used to go to uh, the Catskill Mountains and stay at the best hotels. And in the years he didn't do well, we went to Coney Island. So you grew up in a pretty nice environment. You're, you weren't poverty-stricken. You weren't extremely wealthy. And what uh, borough were you? Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Okay. Bensonhurst. Okay. <laughs> All right, so when you, you went to school, where? In New York City. I went to public school in the neighborhood. I went to high school in Manhattan for a special high school for boys. I never worked so hard in my life during those three years. So when you graduated from high school, what did you decide to do then? I wanted to be a lawyer. This was during the war. Um, and I spent uh, two years in the Army. Did you serve overseas or you stayed in the States? So I, I was a, an Air Force cadet, and I was uh, tra in training to be a pilot. So when the war ended... I went back into college but decided I did not want to take the time to be a lawyer, so I uh, transferred to accounting. You thought accounting was more exciting than <laughs> law school? Uh, no. <laughs> but it worked for me. It, okay. it became exciting. All right. And so then you joined an accounting firm. Is that right? Yes, I did. A and you, you worked your way up to become a partner in it? Uh, not only a partner, but a name partner. In 12 years, the name of the company was uh, Schneehauer and Schwartz. And for a kid, I was a kid then. I was 30-some-odd years right. old. But, but you have clients then. Did you ever think, yeah, I'm smarter than these clients I'm doing the accounting work for? Did that ever occur to you? Always, every day. <laughs> but then an offer came to work with your brothers? My brother was very successful. He ran his business into a Fortune 500 company. He did extremely well. Uh, but he got into trouble at one time financially. Uh, he needed some help. So you left the accounting firm. You go to work for your brother's company. And you're doing pretty well there. I, the reason why I was so successful as an accountant, uh, in those days, it was very hard to become a public company, and you had to have a certain amount of size, et cetera. Um, I um, uh, brought a couple companies 
into an IPO situation, and they were very successful. One was my brother's company. And he was in Chicago at a convention one day, and he said, everybody is talking about the fact that we went public and got such a good deal. And I said, you were the guy who did it. And somebody here by the name of Steinberg wants to meet you. That's Jules Steinberg, the father of uh, us all. Okay, so Saul Steinberg uh, was a very bright young man. He went to uh, Wharton, and then he went to work in his family's company for a while, but then he decided to come up with a novel idea for a new company. Can you tell us what that was? When he was in, in school, he wrote a paper uh, that said, even IBM, as big a company as IBM, is they will not be able to finance the new style computers that were coming out by IBM. These are big 360 computers. They're big gigantic. Ones. That's right. Very expensive. You bet. And uh, so Saul said there would have to be another arrangement to finance that kind of business. And he developed the idea of a leasing company. So the, this company was called Leasco. That company was called Leasco. And, and I, was, I became his accountant. All right, so you were helping him buy companies, and did you join Leasco? When we went after Reliance Insurance Company, uh, when we decided to go after them, he said to me, um, you're going to have to join the company. I can't do this alone. And uh, he said, write your own ticket, do whatever you want to do. Um, I became president of the company. All right, so at some point, you meet some people who've started a company called Loral. Yes. And how did you happen to meet these people, and why did they need you to meet with them? My best friend was the head of one of the major uh, legal firms in the, uh, uh, in the city. His name was Bob Hodes. So one day, uh, he calls me up and he said, some of the board members would like to meet you from uh, Loral. I said, what's Loral? <laughs> he said, I'm on the board of Loral. He said, they would like to meet you and talk about the company. So I took out a standard and poor page um, of the company, read up on it, it took me about 15 minutes, and I went to lunch as an expert. And what I said to them was, look, Loral is a defense electronics company that was talked in to diversify. And although they knew how to do defense electronics, they had the technology, they were buying companies they had absolutely no interest in, no knowledge of, no capacity to lead. And I said to them, sell those businesses and keep Loral's defense business. Thank you for lunch, and I left. The next day, Bob Hose said, how would you like to do that? I said, do what? You know, do what you said Loral should do. I said, are you offering me your job? He said, yes. I said, you want me to work for the then chairman, Leon Alpert? I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, I've got the best job in the world. Where am I at? He said, well, think about it. I think we can arrange it so that you might be able to take over the whole company. So you bought the share of the company, yep. and you became the CEO. Yes. All right, so now you're running a defense electronics company, but yes. how small was it at that point? Uh, our sales were about $22 million, and we were losing money. Okay, so your friends told you you were crazy? You're Nobody had the audacity to tell me I'm crazy. <laughs> okay. So you start running it, and then you realize you don't know that much about defense electronics, right? That's right. So you get some people to educate you somehow? I did something that nobody knew anything about. <clears throat> I got a, a fellow who was an engineer uh, from um, Columbia, 
and he came into my office at 8.30 on Tuesday and Thursday, and we worked together until 12.30. And we did that for many, many months. And I began, if not, I could not design something in engineering, but at least I understood now the language. So I would sit at one of our meetings, and every once in a while I would ask a question, and I could see the, the puzzlement on the part of the people in the, in the meeting. They were thinking, maybe he does know something about electronics. Okay, so you started an acquisition strategy eventually. Yes. And you made many very well-known acquisitions. Um, Goodyear, Ford Aerospace, among others. So what was your strategy to basically know these other defense companies better than anybody else and just be able to move more quickly? The defense business was not well regarded by Wall Street. So small companies who were doing well could not get public support from Wall Street. And it was my idea that I could come in and put those companies together. And I made, I think, 26 acquisitions in around. And I was always interested in synergy. So that if a company was selling the Navy and I was selling the Air Force, he would introduce me for my products into the Navy. So I got people to come on board in my acquisition program. And we grew um, for the next 24 years after I bought the company. And for 96 quarters, successive quarters, we made more money than we did the year before. Okay, so the company grew to the point where it was a multi-billion dollar company. You yes. were, uh, the Pentagon is calling you up and asking you to do various things with the RAL. So did you ever think of um, selling the company? I never thought of selling the company, but by the time I was 70 years of age, the company was doing extremely, not extremely well, extraordinarily well. For every um, dollar that you invested when I did in 1972, uh, you can multiply the value uh, by hundreds. We never had a quarter that was bad. We continued to grow. Every division we ever bought was successful for us. We were a very large company. So what were you doing that others weren't doing? Were you just motivating the people better? Were you smarter than the other people? In the I, I think we had a culture at Laurel that was extraordinary. Uh, it was win-win was, uh, was one of the cultures. Another one was to promote from within. So I didn't go out and hire somebody because I had an open spot. I got somebody in the company that can move up. We had a culture where um, the stockholder, the shareholder, was not our only constituent. The employees were our constituents. The executives were our constituents. Our, uh, our, uh, our partners were. Our customers were. Even, to some degree, our competitors. We ran Laurel as a company that everybody could win, and we took care to make sure that people believed that and understood. So when you made acquisitions, did you do what people often do when they make acquisitions, fire people so you can cut Not at all. Never once did we ever fire anybody because of an acquisition. I closed one plant in Great Neck because I bought a, a company that was very close to the plant that we had, but we kept the same people. I believe that individuals who bought companies and they fire the lawyers because they had lawyers, and they fire the accountants because they had, et cetera. There was an, an overabundance of capability. I never did that. We kept everybody, and after the first few acquisitions, 
I was relieved when I said that's what we were going to do. So um, ultimately, you decided to sell on some part of Laurel, and around, the, around 1997 or so, yes. you decided to uh, sell it to somebody you picked in advance. Um, how did you decide to sell it to Lockheed Martin? Um, I decided it was time to sell it. And I thought about what to do, and I could only think of one company that would be an appropriate buyer, and that would be Lockheed Martin. I called up uh, Norm Augustine, who was the chairman of Lockheed, uh, of Lockheed Martin, and sort of a, a maven in the defense business. And I said to him, I'm thinking of selling our defense business, and I'd like to have a conversation with you. So we met in a little diner near his office in Washington, where nobody would know us. And I had an envelope in my pocket. I took it out, of, and I wrote down what the terms would be. <laughs> And though you, you read about back of the envelope kind of deals, that's what this was. So he said to me, I think the price is too high, and I want to buy the whole business, not just the defense electronics business. I want to buy uh, the uh, satellite business as well. I said, well, that's not for sale. I'm going to keep that. The price is what I think it is. Very good for me, but it's fair for you. And if you don't buy the company, I'm not going to sell it to anybody else. It's not for sale unless I sell it to you because I trust you'll take care of my, my people. So ultimately, he came to your price? Oh, yeah. But we had a lot of trouble with his board. Hey, ultimately, the board went along. Yeah. Uh, it was his recommendation. The board went along. You sold it for roughly $9 billion. Yes. And um, so who got all that money? Did you get some, your shareholders? Did you give any to your employees who weren't legally entitled to any? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, it was a unique deal because I took the money that we got, almost all the money, I kept $2, two billion, and gave the rest to the shareholders. That's a dividend. Now, most people in that business, if it was a CEO or any business, and they sold that, they'd keep that money and they use it for their own particular ego or whatever. I paid it out to the shareholders. Um, there was also a concern of mine that there were a certain number of people at Loral particularly as a corporate uh, area, we, who would not be able to get jobs with Lockheed Martin. Okay. okay. So I created a fund of $18 million of my own money, and I made it available to these people and paid it out to them so they can get other jobs. Now, to make it clear, when you sold the company for $9 billion, the satellite part of your company remains, so right. you could still have kept the $9 billion in the parent company in the you satellite bet. business, but you, you chose to distribute it. Right. So then you are, at the age of 70, still running a publicly traded company that is in the satellite business. Right. Why did you want to stay in the satellite business? Why not sell everything? I didn't want to retire completely. I wanted to continue. Okay, so ultimately, though, um, you sold that business as well. Well, eventually, when I, sold, when I finally retired, I sold the four operations okay. that remain. That was one so of them. So you did that at age 80? Yes. And... Um, then you have a fair amount of money, and you care about public policy. Did you say to anybody in the government, I want to come in to serve in the government, or do you want to do anything like that? Oh, too smart. Okay. So you got involved in politics. You've been a committed Democrat for a long time. So you were pretty close to Bill and Hillary Clinton. Is that right? So you supported uh, Hillary Clinton for president? Certainly. And were you surprised she lost? Very. Um, uh, my wife I, uh, and I, uh, Irene uh, and I, 
had every four years on election night an election night party. And this was started out when Nixon was running against Hubert Humphrey. Every four years we had a party. And every year it got bigger and bigger. The last one we had close to 350 people. But on the night of Hillary's election, I got up and made a speech to the people who were there at the party. And I said, Hillary is going to win. Don't worry about it. Let's all go to sleep. And I went to sleep. And the next morning, I was surprised. So um, as you got wealthier in life, did you ever think maybe you could be a Republican and be more protecting of some of the stuff you had acquired? My grandfather was a German. And he came to uh, New York City, and he met some, a Southern girl who was my, became my grandmother. She was born in Memphis, Tennessee during the Civil War. Like it's just, that's how far that goes back. And my grandfather worked for Tammany Hall in New York. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but Tammany Hall was the political party, the Democratic Party, in New York City. And they ran everything. He got pneumonia and died. My grandmother lived a very long period of time after that. And every Thanksgiving, she received a turkey from Tammany Hall. And every Christmas, a bag of coal from Tammany Hall. Now, you don't pay a lot of bills for that kind of thing, but they believe they always had a friend. And that caused that generation to be Democrats. The following Schwartz family were Democrats. The grandchildren are. We have four generations of Democrats. I'm never going to leave the party. Okay. Um, so when you uh, go to Washington as a um, committed Democrat and businessman, or now a former businessman, do you find that members of Congress, people in the administration, the Democratic administration, listen to you? And, and do you find that they don't understand business that much sometimes? Or do you think they do understand business? They do not understand anything about business, unfortunately. Um, some listen, some don't listen. I'm happy to say that uh, the leaders of the party listen to me. And um, we're close. So you're very involved in a lot of public policy institutes. I said at the beginning, you're a public policy advocate. So um, if you were running for president of the United States, and you know, in this day and age, you're not too old to run for president of the United States, I think, right? Right. So you're not considering it, are you? Let's talk. OK. <laughs> so if you were running for president of the United States, presumably as a Democrat, uh, what would you say are the most important things you would want uh, to tell the country you would do? I would tell them what I've been telling my fellow Democrats. They should have a program that appeals to people not only in New York and Los Angeles, but to people in Western Pennsylvania and Ohio and Wisconsin. We can't win an election, national election, without the middle section. If you look at the map of this country, it's a Republican country. Most of the counties are Republican. The court system is. The Supreme Court is uh, now only one House of Congress, the president. It's a Republican country. If the Democrats don't do something differently to appeal to the people in that mid-portion, we're not going to win. And I think we ought to put forth a program that is simple to understand and simple to explain, but means something to every one of the voters. Donald Trump is an interesting man. And I think he's evil, and I think he is a danger to this country. But he knows something about how to merchandise a product. He merchandised Donald Trump very well. And how did he do it? He got on stage and said to those people, we're having a, a, an economic problem. I can fix it for you. He didn't tell them how. 
I think we ought to have in the Democratic Party something like four programs that will appeal to everybody. And if you want to add to that and you're running for office, do so. But at least this would be the Democratic Party. The first thing would be health care. You mentioned health care. You know it's a Democratic program. I think we, we want to have an infrastructure program in this country. We can afford it. We need it desperately. And it will put eight or nine or 10 million people back, back to work in good jobs. I think we need a program that brings equality of, uh, of economic benefit to the American people. The tax bill that was passed by the Republicans a year ago only helps the 1%, not the rest of the country. Um, I think we need uh, to understand uh, that one of the big problems that we're going to face in this country is retirement. More than 50% of the people working in this country cannot retire because they won't have enough money at retirement age. It's not supervised. It's not overseen by other people, either by private or public. We ought to change that and make it so that everybody will be able to have that opportunity. Right. So um, let me ask you a question about your health and your own longevity. Um, you're 93 years old. Clearly, your mind is as sharp as when I first met you 30-plus years ago. So to what do you attribute that? Do you have good genes? Yes. You, your, but your parents did not live to be in their 90s, right? Yes, not 90s, but in their 80s. Okay. And in, in their generation, that was pretty good. But do you keep, you keep your brain exercise? Are you doing crossword puzzles? Are you learning musical instruments? Are you reading lots of books? What do you do to keep the brain active? I read a lot of books. I argue with a lot of people. <laughs> Okay. And I'll tell you what I do, do, do also. Um, when I am in a car driving, I look at license plates. And what I do is I add them forward, I add them backwards, and I play um, uh, blackjack with myself. I see if I can get to 21. Oh, wait a second. This is when you are in a in car. A, you're in a car, but you're not the driver. I'm not the driver. Okay. Even when I was a driver, I did that. But you're not driving now. Are you? I don't drive anymore. Okay. No. So what about the body? What do you do to keep the body in shape? I, you I, exercise. I, you have a trainer. Physical trainer uh, comes in three times a week, and uh, I uh, keep very active physically. Okay. So what are you most proud of having achieved in your distinguished career? I was lucky at each stage. I did well at each stage, but Loral was really uh, an extraordinary opportunity. And we changed the culture of the industry. So you say in your book that just say yes. And what does that refer to, just say yes? Uh, it's an optimistic view of life. Say, what I've learned about life, luck, and the pursuit of opportunity. Is luck is one of the most important things in life? Absolutely. And um, how long did it take you to write this book? About a year and a half. And so you, you were not an author, so did you have somebody help you? Do you sit down and write it? Do you dictate it? How do you do that? Well, first of all, one uh, day, my son-in-law and my two daughters said, you ought to write a book because there's a special culture that you ought to talk about. So I decided to. And I went to Simon & Schuster. I, I wrote a couple of outlines. Simon & Schuster said, you're writing the book about um, uh, a, a business. It's better for you to write a book about Bernard Schwartz, because they'll have wider audience in the, uh, among the buying public. And so I did. I see. So let me ask you finally about your philanthropy. Um, you're giving away large sums by any normal human standard. 
So you haven't said, uh, maybe I'll just hold it for my family, I'll just buy more homes or artwork, or just, why are you giving away so much money? Payback is important to me. Everything I got, I got because I lived in a society that helped me get to where I am. Um, and paying back is part of what that life commitment is all about. So uh, I've given a lot of, a lot of money uh, to various charities, um, including NYU, uh, NYU Medical Center, uh, Johns Hopkins Medical Center. Um, so if anybody's watching this and wants some of your money, what are they, who do they call? Everybody calls. Okay. Um, but I'm, I've become a little bit more selective, to be candid with you. And um, I promised uh, my children I'm going to be less profligate in the future and more careful. All right. Well, Bernard, this is a very interesting life story. I want to thank you. I've read your book. I think it's quite uh, well written and a really good story about American life uh, as you have uh, lived it and uh, American dream, really. Thank you for doing that, and well, thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.